Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. To have the federal government seize voting machines, it's a terrible idea for the country. That's not how we do things in the United States. There's no legal authority to do that. New reporting says the special counsel is signaling interest in the bizarre December 2020 meeting in Trump's White House, where his clown car team of Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell and the Overstock guy discussed how to overturn Joe Biden's victory. Also tonight, after the hottest days on record, has climate change already reached a tipping point? The meteorologist who left local news after his climate coverage led to a death threat joins me tonight. And America's economy is red hot. Jobs and wages are growing. Inflation is easing. So why isn't Joe Biden more popular? But we begin tonight with a crisis that is impossible to ignore. Now, I often start this show with the most recent assault on American democracy at the hands of the modern Republican Party or the Supreme Court. Well, tonight, I want to talk to you about a different type of existential threat. We all know it's hot. Some of you in Arizona spent the day trying to avoid 115-day heat, and next week it might hit 120. Earlier this week, I shared some really terrifying news. Some scientists believe that July 4th of this year may have been one of the hottest days on Earth in 125,000 years. Guess what? We keep breaking those records. The Earth's average temperature set a new unofficial record on Thursday, the third such milestone in a week that already was rated as the hottest on record. The Earth's planetary average surpassed the 62.9 degree mark. Now, mind you, half the globe is in their winter season right now. And until Monday, no day had passed a 62.6 degree average in the 44 years since such records have been kept. These mind-blowing facts, because climate change isn't an opinion, are largely due to a dangerous combination of surging temperatures and the return of El Nino. But that is not all. The oceans are warmer, and sea ice levels in Antarctica are dropping to an unparalleled level. Here are some recent examples of what's happening. Beijing's temperature hit 104 degrees, putting the city on track for one of its most severe heat waves on record. Last week, a scorching heat wave in two of India's most populous states overwhelmed hospitals and filled a morgue to capacity. In Spain, temperatures have exceeded 110 degrees. 100 people died in Mexico because of their heat wave. And here in the United States, more than 20 million Americans were under heat alerts. In the Midwest, a place many assume is a climate haven because of its location and water resources. They are suffering through a near-record drought crisping fields across the Corn Belt. In Texas, temperatures have reached 120 degrees and caused at least a dozen deaths, including a postal worker and a utility worker. They died days before Governor Greg Abbott signed a sweeping new law eliminating mandated water breaks for certain laborers, including construction workers. The law doesn't go into effect until September 1st. But for those having to work outside, 
Abbott's law is grotesque. Here's what one welder told NPR. You know, you can't just tell a construction worker that's working in 100 degree heat, the heat index being 112, 15, that they can't stop and take water. That's cruel and unusual punishment, I believe. We've also seen unprecedented wildfires burn through Canada, sending bands of choking smoke down to the United States. The director of Europe's Climate Change Service told The Washington Post, we have never seen anything like this before. We are in uncharted territory. But as Vox points out, none of this is surprising. It is what scientists have been warning us about for decades. And they say that it will only get worse. One of those experts is Chris Glonsiner, Gloninger, who was the chief meteorologist for CBS affiliate for the CBS affiliate in Des Moines, Iowa. Gloninger has spent nearly two decades warning his viewers that the extreme weather incidents that were they were experiencing were linked to the climate crisis. If you look at the summer that we've seen so far as our planet continues to warm, the third warmest just released today, the third warmest summer on record, and that is a data set of 128 years. And here's why it is important to be stewards of the earth. We have now reached our 529th consecutive month with temperatures globally above that 20th century average. We have some low 90s, too, in the mix, and also poor air quality because of those fires. Again, as the planet warms, a lot of these fires are gaining steam and seeing explosive growth because of the warming planet. He recently told NPR News that it remains the existential crisis of our lifetime. But not everybody wants to hear that. Yesterday, he ended his career as a TV meteorologist, citing in part a string of death threats from one person and the resulting PTSD. The viewer sent him a series of hostile emails telling him to stop spreading a, quote, liberal conspiracy theory, which is nothing but a, quote, Biden hoax. Gloninger will now focus entirely on finding ways to help communities to deal with the climate crisis. And joining me now is Chris Gloninger. After leaving television, he joined the Woods Hole Group as senior scientist. Also joining me is Jeff Goodell, contributing writer for Rolling Stone and author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, a very apropos title for today. Um, Mr. Gloninger, I do want to start with you because it, it seems pretty frightening that um our favorite person usually in local news, I used to work in local news and everybody's favorite person was always the weatherman. The meteorologist was always like the most popular person. Maybe the sports guys were like a close second. I want you to just walk us through what was happening. I mean, you're telling the truth. It's your job. It's your expertise and you're getting death threats. Please explain. Joy, thanks for having me. You know, I started this this journey back in Boston at NBC, where I started the country's first weekly series on climate change, and it kind of gained some steam. Uh, I got picked up by a couple of news directors who wanted to have me bring that message out to the Midwest, where we are at the mercy of Mother Nature, right? 11% of the GDP in Iowa is agriculture. We produce 64% wind power. That is what powers our grid, true renewable energy. But yet, the second I started mentioning it, the pushback started to, to stream in. Very different from Boston. But at that point, I was preaching to the choir. Here it was kind of going into the lion's den. And, uh, you know, it escalated to a point where I received a death threat. And uh, the gentleman pled guilty uh, and received a whopping $150 fine. But after 2016, that was the tipping point where people felt like that they were entitled to just unleash hate. 
And that is exactly what we saw as journalists and as scientists. And did you did, had you had pushback before? Because, I mean, I grew up out west and, and, and there are certain parts of the country where there is this sort of weird duality where people are, they care about nature, right, because they care about being able to hunt. They want nature to remain, remain pristine for the things they like to do outside. But there also is this resistance to the idea that what used to be called global warming, which I think was a, a not, maybe not a term that worked so well, but climate change, the climate crisis is real is that did you get pushback before from people who just were like, I don't like you talking about climate crisis? Sure. I mean, you get the typical responses. The climate's always been changing and you kind yeah. of have to laugh at those responses. Uh, but even in Boston, I did this documentary for NBC uh, Boston where I looked at environmental justice communities and the impact that the climate crisis was having on black and brown communities. And I received pushback even in Boston. Right. And that was almost like taking two hot topics, fusing them together. And I yeah. expected it. I welcomed it. Right. But here it was much more dialed down. Um, and we were talking about data. All I was doing was providing those trends. And he used that clip in, in just before introducing me, where we were talking about how many more 90 degree days we're seeing, how much wind power we're generating, how many homes can that power. This was exciting stuff and, and not really overly controversial. And you know what started as just kind of like ebbing and flowing, uh, the criticism uh, again reached that peak last June. And it ended up in, in a year of therapy, trying to work through some of these emotions. We work wild hours from three to 11. My wife is home alone. Those thoughts weigh in the yeah. back of your mind. So, yeah, absolutely. No, I totally get it. Um, Jeff Cadell, thank you for being here. The, your book is titled The Heat Will Kill You First. Uh, uh, it, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, the heat is killing people. There are people who are literally dying while their governor is saying you have to work outside without a water break. But let me just show a, few, a little data. Um, and so this is surface air temperatures. And it's scary when you just look at it as a graph where you see it just spike and spike and spike up from 1979 to 2000. Um, there's another graph here um, that talks about a side-by-side -side of the coverage of sea ice in the Northern Hemisphere. And you can just sort of visually see it change over time. This is data. It's science. Why do you think there is such an emotional resistance to believing that the climate crisis is real? Uh, that's a very good question. I think that, you know, it, the problem is the climate crisis is, is affects everything, right? And people don't want to think that, you know, their actions, what they're doing um, can have this kind of a profound impact on the world we live in. You know, people, uh, deniers often cite, oh, it's just a small percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere. How could that possibly have such an impact? You know, this is some kind of conspiracy with, you know, Bill Gates or whoever else is... <laughs> You know, and we're all profiting off this, and this is some kind of, you know, kind of scam that everybody is running. And, you know, it connects with the anti-vax stuff and, and a lot of other things in this sort of partisan, you know, warfare right now. But, you know, what we're yeah. seeing now in real time is this is this is playing out and it's playing out faster than even the most kind of supposedly alarmist climate scientists were talking about a decade ago. Right. I mean, and, and the thing is, we can feel it and see it. Right. I mean, you can actually see the smoke when it's when New York turns orange and, and we know that that is from wildfires. But then people say, well, that's not climate crisis. And then you have really horrific hurricanes that just take out, you know, whole towns in Florida. And people say, yeah, but they're always hurricanes. Right. And, and do you think that this is mostly due to very successful propaganda by the oil and gas industry? I mean, 
Joe Manchin got a sweetheart gimme deal in what otherwise was a really great bill that helps the economy and builds infrastructure. But he was able to sandwich in a way to take down the good things that the Biden administration is doing in climate because he's just determined we're going to get more coal and we're going to drill for more oil. Is it just mostly the propaganda by these industries that just want more money, even if it kills the earth? Well, I certainly don't want to underestimate the power and influence of um, big oil and the fossil fuel companies that think that, you know, they have had a huge impact on how this is shaped. And, you know, we know now that big companies like ExxonMobil have known for a long time what the impacts have been uh, of, of rising CO2 levels. But it's not only that, you know, this is a this people don't want to think that their world is changing this way. They want to, you know, maintain the status quo and and climate change the, the 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 difficulty with it is it's 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 both enormous and subtle right and it's and it's um hugely consequential and it's slow moving and it's very easy to deny it's very easy to just say oh it's always been hot or to say oh there's always been storms so it's sort of a very difficult threat for us to get our brains around generally even if you didn't have the oil and gas industry spending billions of dollars yeah. um, spreading propaganda. Is there anything we can do about it at this point? Sure, there's a lot we can do about it. I mean, you know, we can, uh, you know, learn more about it, get, become more educated about it. We can fight hard for it. We can vote and make um, yeah. clean energy and climate part of our what we vote for. We can, you know, talk to people about it. We can become activists. You know, there's this whole doomer narrative that like, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're done. You know, there's no point in it. Um, and that's kind of coming from the other yeah. side. And it's exactly the opposite is true. There's a lot that yeah. we can do and we can and we need to do it soon. And Chris, I'm going to give you the last word on this because now you're working full time on this project. What can we do just on a day to day basis? Because I think there is a sense of, of doom and gloom because you're like, well, me throwing this one or two cans into my recycling isn't doing anything. So I think people feel a bit helpless, even if they do believe that the climate crisis is real. Are, are there things we can do on a day to day basis? I think it's it's exciting, the potential, it's job growth, and it, it's people that want to maybe retool their skill set and go into something in the green energy world and the green energy space. And I'd want to say a lot of Iowans are thrilled with the renewable energy program that they have here. So also getting involved, they'll be working on building resilient communities and, and working with their climate adaptation plans as a scientist, but as a professional communicator. And building climate literacy is all we can do. We can, every single one of us can prove on that and talk about it. And when it's top of mind, that's when you get change. That's when you get change when you go into election day and you find the candidate that's doing the right climate action. And I, I think you don't need to quit your job and, and, and devote 100% of your energy onto climate change. But when your community is going through one of these vulnerability assessments and finding ways to adapt and mitigate the impacts of climate change, get to those meetings, talk about what you want and be engaged. And that's all you really need to do. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate uh, that you are doing that. Both of you are trying to help and we're trying to do it. Uh, it's, a t it's a tough thing to talk about on TV because people go, oh, I don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? It's difficult. So I appreciate yeah. both of you. Chris Kloniger, uh, my fellow veteran of local of the local news uh, beat. Uh, appreciate you. And Jeff Goodell, I'm definitely going to read your book. I'll, I'll be terrified reading it, but I'm going to read it anyway. Thank you. Uh, and up next on the readout, it does look like the special counsel is taking a special interest in a bizarro six-hour meeting in the Oval Office in the lead up to January 6th. More on that when the readout continues.
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. During the January 6th committee hearings, we got a glimpse into a White House meeting that took place six weeks after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, a meeting former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson called unhinged. First of all, the overstock person, I've never been who this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him and I said, who are you? Cipollone and Hirschman and uh, whoever the other guy was showed nothing but contempt and disdain uh, of the president. What they were proposing, I thought was nuts. To have the federal government seize voting machines, that's a terrible idea for the country. Some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the internet. Flynn screamed at me that I was a quitter and everything. He kept on standing up and turning around and screaming at me. I'm going to categorically describe it as you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way, you're a bunch of the motley crew of Trump's outside sycophants, Trump lawyer and the Kraken lady, Sidney Powell, disgraced former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who previously pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about contacts with the Kremlin, and overstock CEO Patrick Byrne, basically the couch's version of the pillow guy, also floated proposals like naming Powell special counsel to investigate non-existent voter fraud. According to CNN, special counsel Jack Smith is now questioning witnesses about that six-hour meeting, which took place on the night of December 18th, 2020, four days after the legitimate electors had met and finalized the election results in each of their states. The White House meeting ended after midnight, after which the soon-to-be ex-president fired off his infamous big protest in D.C. on January 6th, be there, will be wild, tweet in the wee hours of the morning on December 19th. Joining me now is MSNBC legal analyst Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and former senior member of the Mueller probe. And and, and I have thought, hey, great to see you as always, Andrew, that that tweet always to me was the most important moment before January 6th itself, right? Because this is when Donald Trump makes January 6th a thing. Most Americans didn't know what January 6th was, only us super geeks knew that it was the important day in every, you know, election, uh, presidential election year. He made it a thing, called people to the Capitol. So for you, when you look at that meeting and all the people that were there, what does the Jack Smith's interest in that meeting, there's the tweet, say to you. So uh, it is a very important meeting and the tweet is very important. Um, but as Zoe Lofgren said earlier uh, in commenting about this, it is important to keep this in context because there's so much more 
to what Donald Trump was doing because he had engaged in pressuring the Department of Justice. He engaged in pressuring pressuring um, state electors. Um, he had tried all sorts of ways. So this he was coming down to the last possible ways of overturning the election and the will of the people. So it's obviously very important that that context um, around yeah. it should not be forgotten. Um, obviously, what happened at the meeting, as you alluded to, is is just it's completely antithetical to a democracy. Uh, you have people talking about taking over the Department of Justice uh, with the likes of Sidney Powell, of all people. Uh, you have the idea that the military, with no facts whatsoever, would seize voting machines and redo the election. Um, again, completely antithetical to a democratic process. And the tweet uh, really fits in with that uh, that theme, which is that if you, one of the things that the president was trying to do was say, OK, here's another way to pressure uh, Congress uh, if, if none of this works. So um, to me, this suggests that it's both looking at Donald Trump and his activity uh, at that meeting, but also the other people who are there who are definitely not, you know, off the radar screen. Well, and right. And let's put them back up again, because you have in that room, you have Donald Trump, obviously, Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Rudy Giuliani. We, we talked about them. We have the Overstock CEO, which God only knows why he was there. And some of them wondered the same thing. Emily Newman, who's a Trump administration official, Pat Cipollone, who's the White House counsel, who also talked to the January 6th committee. You have Trump advisor Eric Hirschhorn is the one who said that's nuts. All this is bananas. Derek Lyons, who's the staff secretary. Mark Meadows, who keeps coming up. And um, Matt Morgan, who is a Trump campaign lawyer and Robert O'Brien national security advisor. Afterwards, Cassidy Hutchinson snaps a photo of literally Mark Meadows walking Giuliani out to make sure he leaves. Okay, so all of that happens. Trump then tweets sometime after that, it's going to be wild. I, I note that because the two key dates, Andrew, had passed. December 8th, which is when they have the formal sort of finalization of the electoral count process. And then this uh, December 14th date, which is when the electors have, have set it up in all of their states. The real electors have done what they're going to do. And yet Trump comes out of this six hour meeting saying something's going to happen on January 6th. It seems like that's the key, right? Because the question is, well, what did he say is going to happen? What did he conclude from that meeting was going to happen? Because you've got a lot of January 6th defendants saying Trump is who brought me here. Trump is who made me do this violence. What do you, absolutely, I mean, and I would, uh, yeah, absolutely. I would add to that that list. That's that's excellent, um, Joy. I would add to that list that they'd gone to court and lost everything. So the yes. challenges, all the reason those dates are so critical, is that they actually had their opportunity to be heard and they lost all of those cases. And Patsy Bloney to the January sixth committee said something that I thought was right on point. Um, he said. You know what? There's a certain place in time where, yeah, it's put up or shut up. And it's like, right. you have evidence. This is the time to tell us. And to this day, there is no evidence. I mean, we just have to look at the recommendation of the DC bar today that Rudy Giuliani should be disbarred because he had no evidence to support the claim that he made in federal court that the election should be overturned. And to me, it's all of a piece. There is no factual evidence. Um, so you know, that is really the key to uh, the reason why I think there will be a criminal case by Jack Smith is because there's, to this date, no factual support 
for any of the steps that they were taking. Um, and it right. they and the, be more serious. And the thing is that, that, it, that I can't get out of my mind is that they, they meet for six hours with these this sort of Looney Tune crew. But somehow Donald Trump and not just him, Steve Bannon on January 5th says basically, Watch your butt. Something's going to happen tomorrow. They came out of that meeting with something of a plan. We don't know what it was, but it's hard for me to believe that they didn't come away, or at least Donald Trump didn't come away believing that after all those legal failures, after they had exhausted the the, the true electoral college process, what is it he think they could do? It was all over. And yet, he believed if he marched to the Capitol, something was going to happen. I feel like it's so incriminating. I'd be shocked if uh, he wasn't indicted. And how shocked would you be if he's not? I, I just don't think I, mean, I don't even go there because I just think it's going to happen. And to your answer, yeah. your question of what do I think the strategy was? I think the strategy was and still is might makes right. Um, this was just a yeah. simple question of I don't care about the facts. I don't care about the law. This is a question of whoever can just have power and can keep it, regardless of principles, regardless of the fact that we have a long history of a peaceful transition of, of power in this country. Yeah. Um, so I just think that is what was going on, was just what is the next step, which is why they were talking about having the, ordering the military to, to yes. redo a vote. It, 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 it would be like storming the Oscar stage when the only purpose of the people on the stage is to read what's in the envelope. Literally, the vice president at that point is the guy on the Oscar stage reading the envelope. Everything is over. And so for them to think that somehow they could make him do something that he didn't have any power to do, I'm with you. It tells me that they thought that something violent was going to happen. That my opinion alone, but uh, Andrew Weissman, it's always great to have you on. Uh, your opinion matters much more than mine because you're actually an actual expert. Thank Not you very, <laughs> thank you very much. Nice. And coming up, a pretty weird week for Ron DeSantis. And don't even get me started on the alternate reality candidacy of Robert Kennedy Jr. Okay, I changed my mind. You can get me started on that. <laughs> and that will be next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Parents' rights defended. School choice universal. Critical race theory prohibited. DEI stopped. We will not allow you to exploit their innocence to advance your agenda. We are no longer silent. We are united. 
And we have finally found our fighter. Well, it's official. Casey DeSantis has entered the race, presumably to inject some personality into her awkward husband Ron's campaign. Florida's first lady released a new ad to launch Mamas for DeSantis, an initiative that espouses parental rights, but really mama bear fascism. It's the latest plug for DeSantis's bare bones platform. What is he promising anyway? Other than tormenting gay kids and the Latino workers who fuel Florida's economy? Well, meanwhile, Bidenomics are winning with job numbers up and unemployment down. But then why aren't his approval numbers higher? And if things weren't weird enough, it is looking like a conspiracy theorist with a famous name could be the bigger thorn for Biden. That would be Robert F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr., prominent descendant of America's most famous political dynasty, and who said, a guy who says COVID vaccines were developed to control people via microchips. He is now garnering 15 to 20 percent of the Democratic vote in recent polls. Just make it all make sense, please. Joining me now to try to do that <laughs> is Cornell Belcher, Democratic strategist, pollster and MSNBC political analyst and Morgan Gillespie, former advisor to Speaker John Boehner and founder of Blue Stack Strategies. I'm going to go in reverse uh, and start with you, Cornell. Uh, the numbers on the economy are actually very good. Um, today we got another jobs report that is excellent. People who were swearing there was going to be a recession are now being like, where's the recession you know, all the indicators of the of the on the economy are, are in good shape. So, number one, why do you suppose that is not impacting Joe Biden's poll numbers more? And why is it that you have such a sort of curious, almost fifth in some polls of the Democratic, potentially Democratic voter base interested in one Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is uh, a strange guy? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let's being, let's put some kind. Let's put some context around this this conversation, Joy. If you go back to um, 2011, uh, the summer of 2011, um, before going into his reelection, Barack Obama's uh, approval numbers were <laughs> were in the mid to sure. low forties as well. Yep. Uh, and he was digging out of an economic re- recession. And if you go back to even go back further, some con- context on this. Look, the economy, all the economic indicators are better right now, coming out of recovery than they were going into 1984 uh, when Reagan famously said it's morning in America and ran that very mm-hmm. famous ad that sort of woke Americans up and said, hey, maybe things aren't as bad as I think they're getting better. Uh, so the, the historical context for this, is, I think, is important. But you also see what Biden and the vice president and Vice President Harris is out there beginning to do now. And that is, it's not going to sell itself, Joy. Uh, they're going to have to tell Americans and talk up the economy and talk about what they've been doing. We were in focus groups about three weeks ago with some sporadic voters, some younger sporadic voters who have, who, Joy, I I, want to say they're watching MSNBC and your show constantly, but they're just not, right? So they're not. They're not. (laughs) No. They're not hot. So, so their mamas are. (laughs) And a grandma. (laughs) Yes, their mamas are. We're not worried. and, and, And they're going to vote. But these younger they voters, they're, they are not tapping into these sources of information. They're not aware of of, of, of the fights that Joe Biden is is, is doing on their behalf. And, and they're, they're wrangled about the student debt sort of conversation. And they have no context for that student debt conversation. So the president and vice president over the next couple of months, I think, are doing the right thing. They're going and they're yeah. going to red places. Right. The president was in what, Georgia and South Carolina touting the sort of manufacturing jobs that are coming back and touting the chips investment and what it's doing in this country. And I think you're going to have to see them do that over the next couple of months, just like uh, Barack Obama did going into 2012. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and giving it a name, Bidenomics, is actually very smart, a, a sort of hashtagable name that you can call it and, and, and brag about yourself. There, there is, Maura, I think, another couple of factors that play into the election. It is the boredom factor. You know, and I, I have this overall arching theory that Americans, you know, we have peace and prosperity and people are bored and they and they want change just for change's sake sometimes, which I think explains some of the RFK stuff, junior stuff, and also people's real, you know, sort of depression post, um, post uh, you know, pandemic depression about having to have their lives change. And there is this thing about, I just want someone young. And so in theory, the sort of overall change mood, the kind of whatever boredom mood in theory should help Ron DeSantis. But he seems to be doing everything that you could possibly do to unhelp himself. He he has become such an extremist. He's so weird. He then goes out and tries to blame the media for his sagging poll numbers by bragging about how much money he's raising, then it turns out that's a lie because 80% of the 130 million he raised, he just transferred from his fund from when he ran for governor. So he can't even do that right. Why do you suppose that the person who in theory should be the person benefiting from the boredom and change desire is such a disaster? He's in the same lane as Donald Trump. So there isn't a huge difference between the two of them as opposed to their age, right? We pointed that out already. And he has spent so much time, honestly, much like Donald Trump. DeSantis has spent so much time on wokeism and attacking Disney, right? He is so obsessed by it. And Trump is so obsessed by his own personal woes. So they're in the same lane. And yes, like right now, the former president is high in the polls. He's an incumbent for the GOP. So it's not too surprising this at this point in the race. Uh, but for DeSantis, his biggest problem, I would say, similar to Hillary Clinton's problem, they don't have mass appeal. And across the board, they're not going to be able to get the nomination. Um, you know, if Joe Biden or if Joe Biden had run then, he would have gotten it instead of Hillary Clinton. And I think it's a similar situation for Ron DeSantis. He is going to be in a position yeah. constantly behind Donald Trump. And even if he were to get it, nobody wants a six-week abortion ban, man. You know, nobody dis- detests black people like with the intensity that he does. And meanwhile, to stay with you for a second, Maura, mm-hmm. the Trump party mm-hmm. seems to be fighting itself. So Marjorie Taylor Greene just got booted out of the Freedom Caucus because she called the other um, not super bright one, um, Bobert, uh, a little B word. Uh, mm-hmm. What is happening there? Why are why are why are all the the, the, the uh, loopy ladies fighting? <laughs> It, it's going to be really interesting to see because Marjorie Taylor Greene was, I believe, Kevin McCarthy's in with the House Freedom Caucus. So without her, he's going to have to, leadership's going to have to figure out another way in to appease them, more or less. Uh, but you're yeah. right earlier, your point about Republicans, they're going to, we, as a party, we are going to continue to lose if we are so strict on abortion. It will never be a winning issue. And speaking to the loudest voices in our party is honestly going to make us lose again and again and again. I I agree. And I think I I would guess that Cornell Belcher agrees with you too. Cornell Belcher, Maura Gillespie, (laughs) thank you both very much. Still ahead, a remarkable new film from NBC News Studios explores one man's relentless drive to change the nature of warfare forever. The acclaimed director of To End All War joins me next. of atomic weapons, wars will cease. And that is not a small thing. 
That was a quote from J. Robert Oppenheimer, known as the father of the atomic bomb. In the new NBC News Studios documentary, To End All War, Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb, which premieres Sunday night at 10 Eastern on MSNBC. The documentary details the race to invent the A-bomb and its colossal implications. Once it was built and tested, Oppenheimer, as well as American leadership, thought it was essential to show the world that America had this weapon. They wanted to make this happen. They didn't want the war to end before it happened. Oppenheimer wanted the bomb to be used because how else would the world know what it was? The documentary details the multiple options they had, including avoiding civilian deaths by bombing the Tokyo Bay in a show of strength. But they decided instead to hit civilians as hard as they possibly could in the hopes that nuclear weapons would never be used again. But after the dust settled, Oppenheimer had a crisis of conscience and spent years warning of its dangers. I have been asked whether in the years to come it will be possible to kill 40 million American people by the use of atomic bombs in a single night. I'm afraid that the answer to that question is yes. Joining me now is Chris Castle, the director of To End All War, and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and journalist Kai Bird. He's the co-author of the book American Prometheus, which inspired To End All War, and the movie Oppenheimer, which opens in theaters later this month. Thank you both for being here. Mr. Castle, um, it's a great documentary. I, you know, I, I've always you. sort of thought of Oppenheimer as a villain, to be honest with you. Um, we're the only country that's ever used atomic weapons on people. Um, but he emerges in this as sort of a villain, but also sort of a tragic tragic figure. Um, he does. Which do you kind of come away from this film thinking that he is? I think he's more of a tragic figure, actually. And you have to think about the motivation for him doing this project in the first place, which was he was a Jew of German descent. Um, 1939, the, the Nazis um, discovered nuclear fission. And uh, we believe they had as much of it as a two-year head start on us uh, in terms of going for the bomb. And um, certainly nobody wanted to see Hitler be the first to have an atomic weapon. And so that was the motivation for all the Manhattan Project scientists really throughout the war. Um, where it gets a little murky is when Germany is defeated and then the target shifts to Japan. Um, and Oppenheimer, by that point, was so far into it. And he, I think, along with many others, had rationalized that it was better to show the world what this weapon could do than to let it lie on a shelf um, as a threat that nobody understands. And so we can certainly debate uh, the ethics of that idea. But um, I think that was his his. Uh, point of view, you know, going into the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, which were chosen deliberately as two of the only cities that hadn't been already bombed out for reasons of uh, that you just mentioned, so that they, they could be yeah. sort of demonstrations. Mr. Byrd, uh, you know, when Oppenheimer has this crisis of conscience, one of my, the most sort of fascinating scenes in the film is when he goes to President Truman uh, and he essentially expresses, you know, that I have blood on my hands and expresses his regret. And Truman, like, throws him out of his office and is really angry that he would dare question it. And he then goes on this trajectory where he kind of becomes public enemy number one, having been the most celebrated scientist in the country. Um, by the end of his life, do you get the sense from, you know, being his, a biographer of his that he regrets ever having created this weapon? Well, Joy, that's a good question. He, he never expressed any regrets. Uh, you know, he was a scientist and his attitude was that you could not uninvent, you could not stop science. And so it was going to happen. 
But you're right. Uh, you know, he went into Truman and, and was anguished and said he had blood on his hands. And Truman threw him out and said he never wanted to see that crybaby scientist again. But Oppenheimer went on, you know, he was determined to warn Americans and the world about the dangers of the weapon that he himself had created. He literally, that same month that he saw Truman in the Oval Office, he gave a speech in Philadelphia and he said something astonishing. He said, this is a weapon for aggressors. This is a weapon of terror. And it was used on an already virtually defeated enemy. And he warned about the dangers of a dirty bomb. They, he warned about the dangers of third state actors using this weapon as a, a terror weapon in New York Harbor. Uh, he was obsessed with trying to warn people about what was the danger that we're, we all now have to live with. And yeah. actually, we now see how timely this is with the war in Ukraine. Uh, we're still living and it's the story is not over. It may end badly. You're absolutely right. And we're the, his fear of the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, which is even worse and even more deadly. And, you know, Mr. Castle, it even gets into, you know, the post-World War II period and this sort of red scare that he then gets swept up in. It's hard for people, I think, to imagine that people would question, well, is this guy a communist? Is he actually dangerous? But that is what happened to him. Yeah, that is what happened. I mean, you know, we're going into the Cold War. We now had this other nation that was also developing nuclear weapons. Um, and there was an incredible amount of fear uh, about what the Russians might do or anyone that has any sympathies with the Russians uh, might do. And so he was caught up in that. And really, um, I think, was probably the uh, the primary target, really, of that uh, McCarthyism and probably the most prominent of the targets that was taken down by it. Um, and, you know, there's some relevance to that today when we think about scientists who are still in the line of fire that may be voicing an opinion that's different from, um, you know, what the powers that be want to hear. And so you could you could apply that to climate change. You could apply that to covid. Um, you know, scientists are still under threat um, for voicing their beliefs. And, and uh, Oppenheimer going down really uh, contributed to a fear among scientists um, that they should, you know, not get political, not speak out. Mm -hmm. um, and you saw that in the decades after that uh, many scientists just went about their work and, and just tried not to make any waves. Yeah, it is. It's such a fascinating story. Uh, and I really thank you for making the film and for writing the book, which I am now going to read as well. I have a very long reading list. I keep <laughs> adding you. to it. Chris Castle and Kai Bird, thank you both very much. To end all war, Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb Cheers premieres Sunday night at 10 Eastern right here on MSNBC. And it is streaming on Peacock. It is so good. Do not miss it. We'll be right back. So we are ending tonight on some really tough news uh, for the MSNBC family. Well, so basically the thing is, the thing is about TV is that the people that you make these shows with very quickly become your extended family. Your producers, the director, the folks who pin the mics on you and make you up and throw some lights on you so you don't look like you're in your mother's basement. The folks in your ear who, when you talk back to them, it kind of seems like you're talking to yourself. But the leader of the crew inside the studio is the stage manager. They are literally the friend who hangs out in the room while you do the show. They give you the three, two, one, go and interpret the director's instructions. My very first stage manager on my very first show, The Reed Report, back in 2014, was a guy named Don Wormley. I inherited him from my friend Martin Bashir. They had a constant banter that was basically like a sitcom. 
And I got to say, Don and I had our own sitcom, too. We managed to talk and laugh our way through every single commercial break, whether we were cracking on each other like siblings. He used to call me Big Cheryl. Now, it's a Martin reference. Just Google it. And I called him Don Wormley. Or if we were gabbing about our kids, our spouses, and our lives. I genuinely love this man, who most folks called Big Worm. He had just retired in February after learning that he wasn't well. He had a big old retirement party and everything alongside a fellow retiring crewmate. Well, Don is not here anymore, which seems awfully unfair. He passed away with his beloved family beside him this week. He was only 59. Sending lots of love tonight to Don's wonderful wife, Palma, their children and their grandbaby, his work bestie, Anna, and the whole crew at MSNBC in New York, because we are a family. And when one of us is gone, all of us are lost. Love and miss you, Big Worm. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.